Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes, more than 550 and counting, are available for free. You can listen to all of it for free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash other pod. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. I don't know. Just one person at just Hi, everybody. Hello. This is the Other People (laughs) Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I have a head cold. Can you hear it? I don't know if you can hear it. I am very pleased to have Morris Collins on the program. His first novel, Horse Latitudes, is uh, out from Dezank Books. And it was the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, thenervousbreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. The uh, new editor-in-chief is Joey Grantham. So uh, if you would like to join the book club, you can find out about that at thenervousbreakdown.com. I interview book club authors here on the program. So Morris and I had a great conversation, and uh, that's coming up just like seconds from now. I uh, don't have much to offer other than To wish you all a happy new year. This is the first episode of 2019. I feel like 2018, uh, you know, it's it's kind of even hard to talk about. So much craziness, but also a lot of good. And I hope that in 2019, there is some kind of uh, peaceful revolution. Is that too much to hope for? So let's get to the conversation. The first uh, interview of 2019 with Morris Collins. His debut novel, Horse Latitudes, is available now from Dezank Books. Writing was always important to me, but, like, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't really even have a sense going to college. That I didn't know what an MFA program was. I, didn't, I certainly didn't have a sense of that that's what I was going to do. I was a medieval language like, uh, major primarily in college. I did a lot of... Um, that sort of thing. What does that even mean? Like Gaelic or like... What? Yeah, M- Middle Welsh, Anglo-Saxon, Middle English, Anglo... Uh, yeah, Old English. So yeah, lots of Latin. Um, so you're fluent in those, are you fluent in those languages? Uh, back in the day, I could read them pretty pretty well. Um, you know, there's no one really to speak to in them, luckily. Uh, 
but yeah, I, I you know, the, the vocabularies often weren't super big. You know, they, you needed to know who was fighting who. How did you? How um, did you? How did you even get into that? Yeah, I don't. You know, when I was in high school, actually, my my first my freshman year of high school, um, I remember over Thanksgiving break, I was reading like some. Uh, I think the the British writer actually, Alan Gardner. Um, had rewritten um, some old Welsh legends for children. Um, and I remember reading some of them and really liking them. And for some reason, I thought to myself, I'm going to uh, teach myself Welsh. And so I started trying to teach myself Welsh in high school. And then um, I had a, a teacher in high school who tutored me actually in Anglo-Saxon a little bit. So I started doing it in high school, just sort of on my own as an autodidact, kind of. That's unusual. <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, not not super popular, but so and does does this have any like family? Uh, like, is this some kind of family thing where you're you're going back to your roots? Like, do you have any like Welsh roots, or is there any kind of like you know um, ancestral thing that wanted to, that you wanted to sort of uh, work out? No, not really. Like, I, I don't I don't think so. I just you know I I, I liked I liked it over there. Um, I'd gone over there a lot. My mom lives in um on in the UK. So I go over pretty frequently, and so I always liked the landscape. I liked Wales a lot, but no, I just got really caught up by the literature and uh, wanted to read it in the original. And so started trying to teach myself. Oh, interesting. So your mom lives in England? She does. Yeah, yeah, Cambridge. Okay, but is your mom English? No, so it's backwards. So my parents are separated, but my father was English and immigrated um, to the United States um, when he was a kid. My mother is from Louisiana and moved to the UK in 2001. Wow. So where in the, my parents are from Louisiana. Where's she from? New Orleans. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Like, like it's city proper. I believe so. Yeah. Wow. All right. So uh, like, it sounds like you were a pretty like scholarly kid. Like if you're trying to like uh, as an autodidact, learn uh what is it like anglo-saxon and welsh yeah, and welsh yeah like w were you uh were you a nerdy kid well at the same time i was probably failing half my classes in high school you know so i was taking latin in high school and probably getting a d i was probably getting a d at the time in math um i was smart i wasn't a good student in high school um i went to a weird sort of little um school in boston uh you know, actually, um, you know, it has a number of writers came out of there the last few years. Caitlin Greenridge, Otessa, Mosfeg, uh, same school. Um, what, what school is this? The Commonwealth School in Boston. It's a, sort of a small private school right downtown. Um, and they were really hard. I did. Uh, and so I wasn't. Yeah, I guess I was. I followed up my own interests, but I wasn't like a very good student, if that makes sense. Were you uh, like, were you getting into trouble? Not so much in high school. I got kicked out of second grade. So I must have gotten in trouble in second grade. What did you get kicked um, out of second grade for? You know, I swear I don't know. It was uh it was a Hebrew it was a Hebrew day school. because um, those were the only Jews I'd ever really met because I you know, I grew up in an Irish neighborhood. But I don't know. I didn't respond well to rabbinical oversight, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> were you raised with uh, like a lot of Judaism? Did you have like a bar mitzvah and stuff? Yeah, I did. I did, yeah. We were you know, yeah, it was a pretty Jewish household. I mean, we did we did Shabbat every every Friday, and yeah, I had bar mitzvah, and I went to temple. Um, but I didn't know. I mean, I didn't have a, a social Jewish life, you know, because everyone in the neighborhood was Irish were Irish Catholics, and you know that was my 
that was my social life. Well, and what is your um, what is I, Shabbat like? Shabbat's like where you you just uh, you shut it down. You don't you like what is it? What does that even mean? Yeah, you, you light some you light the, you light candles at night and you you um you say some prayers and yeah, you're supposed to just sort of yeah exactly you know shut it down, be attentive to the moment, a little bit of I guess it's it's you know it's ancient mindfulness, right? Um, that sounds that sounds good. Uh, like every Friday. Yeah, I still try to to some degree. Like I, I'm not, you know, we we make uh, we make we make some food and light the candles and turn off the phone and you know just try to be present in the moment. I guess like for me, it's not like a, a religious component so much as it's I, I like the slowing down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, and don't like isn't the same thing uh, true for the Sabbath? Isn't there like a certain? I guess it's different sects of Judaism. You know, where you completely you don't even use uh, like in the Orthodox Judaism, you don't even use like uh, any appliances or anything on the Sabbath, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not nearly so um, fastidious as that. But yes, yeah, the, you know, Orthodox, certainly, they, they won't, they won't use um, electricity or technology of any kind for the most part. Yeah. And so like, did you grow up like with a, a strong, like religious belief? Or was it more just like, this is a cultural heritage that, you know, because people have different ways of sort of absorbing that stuff. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I still try to figure that out. No, I don't have strong religious belief. I, w- I, I wish I did, but it's just not, it's not there. I can't, you know, I, I, I can, I see the Bible very clearly as literature. Um, but why but, do you, why do you wish yeah, you, why cultural. do you, why do you, why do you, why do you wish you had a uh, religious belief? I don't know. It sounds comforting, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I I find I find any kind of certainty really attractive, and I don't I don't have it. Yeah, I don't either. I'm the same way, I, and I think I've said similar things before. It's the kind of thing that like non-religious people say with some frequency, where it's like I wish I could do it, and I think it's because it seems like such a nice thing to be able to like to have, you know, if you really believed it. But I'm not sure if I really do want it, unless it's unless it's actually rooted in reality do you know what i'm saying like <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't want to like attach to a myth or i don't know it's just it gets complicated for me i i feel like uh i feel like it's only truly appealing to me if there is a strong foundation of reality it's not just like oh i believe in this story i don't know if i would want that yeah no, that's true and like you you have to sort of i think rationalize your own entitlement if to believe you know like i i because the, the thing that gets me about significant religious belief is is how do you how do you comprehend that all the terrible things that happen and you know and i can't i can't do that i can't believe that there's somehow someone making those choices and i'm somehow just being spared due to my own righteousness you know so yeah i i can't but it would be nice if if that were all worked out somehow yeah i don't i don't think it's going to happen anytime (laughs) soon no i don't think so Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it. The full catastrophe 
and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I'm fascinated by this high school that you went to, that it's produced all these writers. It must it sounds like a good school. Yeah, well, it's produced like, you know, two pretty famous writers and me. Um, and, <laughs> and, those, and that was just three years, you know. Um, yeah, I, it was it was it was really rigorous. Um pretty traditional old-fashioned education really hard i mean i i i i found the grading really hard but um yeah it was a sort of artistic strange eclectic bunch of kids and how big of how big of a class was it oh it's tiny i think the entire school when i was there had about 140 students okay and like did you were you in in class with otessa are you guys contemporaries so she i think otessa graduated in 98 and i graduated in 2000 so I knew who she was. Um, I didn't even know she wrote. Um, you know, uh, so no, I mean, I knew who she was. I didn't like, I didn't, I didn't, you know, really know her. Um, but yeah, she's, so, but certainly, you know, it's a very small school. So you saw, you saw everyone around. Well, that's crazy. Um, it's like, what's well, like one of those like sports high schools that like produces like, you know, three pro baseball players or something like really statistically unlikely. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, I mean, they've, I mean, yeah, I mean, of Tessa, obviously, you know, and then, you know, Caitlin Greenidge was 99. She was a year just ahead of me and, you know, she's had great success last few years. So yeah, no, it's, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure there wasn't much, there wasn't much of a writing culture at the school. I mean, that at, at least not that I was aware of, but you were probably reading a lot you're probably reading well. Yeah, constantly. Yeah. So absolutely. what were some, what were some big books for you as a young person? Like what got you set on this road? You know, I don't, I don't know because I'm not exactly sure when I decided. I know back then, I think one of the books I read, I'm trying to think in high school, that made a huge effect on me was um, Ben Oakley's novel, The Famished Road. I think um, it's sort of, it's, he's a, you know, it won the Booker Prize, I want to say, in like 94 or something like that. He's a Nigerian author. Um, and it was a beautiful, wild sort of magic realist type of novel. I remember being just like blown away by that in high school. Um, how surreal it was and how beautiful the language was and probably trying to copy it in all sorts of terrible ways, you know, for a long time. And then you go up to Rochester. Yeah. Then I was, and so I was always doing creative writing in Rochester. So I was taking creative writing classes every semester, but, um, I was mostly reading and thinking about medieval stuff, but I started writing more and more. And I realized more and more often that like, the way I interacted with literature was it made me want to write or it inspired me to write, or I thought about it from that point of view. So by the time I was leaving Rochester, I sort of decided, yeah, I'm going to try to, you know, privilege writing and do the MFA thing. Um, what did your parents think of this? 
You know, they were okay with that. They were, they were very, very supportive. I mean, um, I was, I was, I was lucky in, in that regard. I didn't have any, any pushback. Um, you know, they thought, okay, go for it. I mean, my father's an academic, so, um, he both thought, you know, okay, fair enough, but also maybe you should try to do something a little bit, um, more stable, like, you know, get a PhD in lit or something like that. But I mean, this was before the whole PhD in creative writing thing had really caught on. Um, Wait, it, it caught on. I was not aware of this. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's, yeah. I mean, I think there's like, what is it? Like 40 or 50 of them in the country. So I, something's happened. You can get a doctorate in creative writing. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Um, I don't know what that, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of been hard for the MFA cause it's kind of devalued the MFA or made the MFA sort of change from a terminal degree to something else. But um, I feel like the academic like uh, job market is so competitive in these spaces because it's really the only play, like the only natural fit for somebody who's writing or who's interested in writing and wants to have a job with some stability, but a flexible schedule that's in their field of interest. Like, you know what I'm saying? And so everybody's applying for this very limited spaces. And if you've got the PhD and somebody else only has the MFA, then I guess that probably gives them the, you know, the advantage. Yeah, it I think gives so. you the I mean, advantage. It, yeah, no, I, I think, I think absolutely. I mean, I, I, I am in academia, but it's, yeah, it's been very hard. Um, I think the, I think that's everybody's story. Hmm. Yeah, so, increasingly. So what about your, what about your novel? Like how, can you talk a little bit about how it came to be? Like, how did you wind up? I mean, you've already talked about your interest in medieval stuff and, uh, like these, uh, ancient languages or whatever, but how did you wind up with an interest in Central America? Yeah, it's kind of, so I was, you know, I guess my first year of graduate school, um, my best friend from college was doing Peace Corps down in Honduras. Um, and he was teaching, he was doing like AIDS education with um, prostitutes and gang members in prison and stuff like that. And I had some time off and I went to Oh, actually, I won. I won like an essay award. I got had got like a thousand bucks, which was a windfall back then. And I went down and spent some time with him down in Honduras, and he showed me all around, like you know, the country as he really wanted me to see it, not the tourist parts of the country, which probably don't even exist anymore. But you know, you know the where prostitutes were living and gang members were living, and showed me all around there. And he was he was in this little town that had a sort of. I guess it had a. It used to be a a, milita- a U.S. military base there. I'm not sure if the military base was even still there. But like in the 80s, when they were you know staging um, counter-revolutionary Contra stuff into Nicaragua, they would train there. So there was a huge former U.S. military presence there, and which meant there was like a whole bunch of creepy old like 50, 60 year old former Marines down in this little town on Honduras with like 16 year old girlfriends and this very sort of you know, girlfriend is probably a euphemistic term, but this, you know, really creepy, terrifying expat culture there. Um, Jesus. Yeah. It it was really sad and horrifying. And like, you know, the, the, the town was, you know, the whole area was very much on the edge of just like falling into terrible crime, um, violence, poverty. Um, And it got a lot worse after that. I mean, Peace Corps ended up pulling out of Honduras, but you know, you would walk through town and, you know, I've, got blondish hair, blue eyes. So did my friend. And people would literally be stopping you every moment on the street saying, you know, will you give me a blue eyed baby? Will you live with me? Will you, you know, and which was incredibly, you know, sad as a, as a, as a sort of, um, an echo of colonialism or whatever, but there were plenty of people down there taking advantage of that. 
Um, and so I, I spent a while down there and got interested in sort of that scene. And then later that year, um, we were a bunch of us from grad school going down to AWP, you know, the, the big writers conference, which was going to be in Austin. And we got there about a week early and ended up going down to Mexico for a week, um, to a border town there. And so I spent some time traveling there as well. What border town? Nuevo Laredo. Oh, okay. What did you do there? Uh, so there wasn't, there wasn't that much to do there. Um, in that it was pretty, I guess it was, on the edge of also is pretty violent time. I think the last mayor of the town at that point had lasted eight hours before being assassinated and no one had replaced him unsurprisingly. Um, but yeah, we went down there and like there's basically what that town is, is it's there's, it used to be a big source of shopping and knockoff drugs for old people from Texas, but it had got so sort of violent. There was really no one there anymore. And then also what there was, there's a huge, this huge walled compound there called Boys Town, which is sort of legal prostitution, where you have these Central American migrants who have been um, coming up, sort of trafficked up by coyotes from Guatemala and Honduras and places like that and haven't quite made it, you know, to the border and have sort of been coerced into these, into this terrifying sort of compound. Um, and so basically we get there and people just try to like either take you to Boys Town or sell you drugs so you know you get there and they say hey do you want to go to boys town like it'd be like a six-year-old in a with a donkey cart and he'd say hey do you want to go to boys town say no i don't really want to go to boys town and he'd sort of look at you say okay well then do you want viagra (laughs) you know it was assuming like a causal relationship i was like no don't want viagra either okay well do you want xanax you know and and you're like actually i I would i'll take a couple (laughs) actually at this point (laughs) xanax would be just about what i need um so yeah it was uh it was um yeah, it was not a good town. <laughs> so you, you spent you spent a week there just to like investigate it. Was this part of book research? Like, were you consciously trying at to... that point? At that point, yeah. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I was going to say, if it sounds like such a bleak place to be, why would you want to even like voluntarily go there unless you're researching a book or you know you're doing some sort of aid work or something? Or you're going yeah. to, or you're going to Boys Town, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and I was there with you know some some other writers from grad school. One of the people I was there with was like an Amish poet who I think she was disastrously high the entire time. Wait, it was just a high Amish poet. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. And, um, what's her name? Can, can we, can we add her or no? <laughs> I'm going to keep that under, under wraps. I think, Damn, um, I want to interview her. <laughs> she's out there. Um, but she was spending the whole time trying to buy a sombrero for her cat. <laughs> and, and, and it was like, you know, no one is wearing a sombrero there's no other tourists here. Please stop trying to buy a sombrero for your cat. Was she actively Amish, or was like she was she's like formerly Amish? Like no, she, no, no, no. For, formerly, her, her, yeah. you know, her, her family was. She was no. She was she was not actively. Yeah, you don't. You, there's no. You, you're not. You're not actively Amish if you're looking for a cat sombrero. No, pro- probably not. Uh, I, I don't know though. So you're down there with an with a um, like an inebriated Amish poet yourself. You're doing research. Are you interviewing people on the street? Are you just kind of soaking it in? Like, what does it actually look like in practice? No, I, w- I w- we were um, drinking, uh, I think, primarily. I'm trying to remember. Like, this was 2005 or 2006. Um, but, yeah, we, we, were, we were just traveling around. I mean, we were eating, talking to people. Yeah, we talked to people in restaurants and stuff like that. There wasn't much going on there. I mean, like, it was – it had – I think gang warfare had taken a real toll on the, on the city. 
Um, so there wasn't a lot of commerce. And then what or, about what about Honduras? You said you spent some time down there. Like, what does that mean? Like, how how much time? I don't remember exactly. I mean, I, I think um, you know, around 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 a month. Um, you know, I, I, 2005, 2006, you know, with my friend who was working down there. Um, so, you know, we, we traveled through the city. And at that point, I, I wasn't going there uh, looking to research. I was just going down there to, um, you know, see what the country was like. But traveling throughout it, I, I sort of realized by the time I left that I wanted to write about it. And what was it, it specifically that made you want to write about it? I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. It would be sort of retrospective. Um, I think I was really struck though by sort of the, 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 the bleakness of, um, all those American expats down there sort of just living these really disastrous sort of lives. I mean, they were just drinking themselves unconscious, um, sort of being exploitative in the, you know, with, you know, literally there'd be like 50 year old guys with 16 year old girlfriends um yeah it was just a weird subculture i i didn't um, had like i gotta be honest i didn't realize that was happening like i know there's expats i know that there's like little communities of retirees like that was always my vision of it like you know retirees looking for like a cheap like beachfront uh mm -hmm. retirement will go to like panama or something like that but i didn't know that there's like creepy pedophile marines <laughs> yeah no it, they're they're they're, def they're definitely is there's there's definitely a former there's a military there's a sort of military presence down there or, or ex-military um sort of creepy presence or there was back then i have no idea if, if it's still if, it, if it's still at large but i imagine i mean i think things like sex tourism don't really go away so did you delve into the history of american intervention uh in central america did you have to get into a lot of research to try to make sense of this. I mean, imagine to get context and to figure out why these people are down there and what the legacy is. You probably had to do some reading. Yeah, and it's. I was sort of thinking about it then because you know these were the Bush years. You know, this two thousand. I guess this was two thousand five, two thousand six. I wrote the book actually two thousand seven, two thousand eight. So, like, yeah, these are these are the Bush years when we were sort of seeing sort of the failure of American sort of imperial imagination in the middle east right like um we had this sense of maybe and this is maybe it was just more cynical than this but you had there was this sort of ideology and practice and just creating terrible vacuums and violence in these countries and that's sort of what happened in central america as well you know and from the starting in the 50s in guatemala probably and then into the 80s certainly in you know nicaragua and then we had a honduras had a coup later in 2009 that you know was more or less tacitly supported by the united states so it, yeah and you know into into those into the, you know, the, the structural or infrastructural um, craters left by the CIA, basically, in those countries, you got, you know, gang warfare, unsurprisingly, just like, you know, sort of in Iraq as well. So, yeah, it's like it's uh, you obviously want democracy to spread. You know, you want countries to be liberated from dictators like uh, authoritarians. Uh, including our own currently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God willing. You know, but I, I guess it like it's an interesting thought project to contemplate, you know, when it comes to how do you, like, what's the best way for a country to try to spread democratic values? Like, it can't be through the barrel of a gun. I, I don't think that tends to work all that well. I think we have, like, the evidence would appear to be in. Um, and, you know, otherwise, what do you do? You know, I guess you, you funnel money through back channels or you... I don't know. Um, but 
I, I think about that sometimes when I contemplate, say, for example, the Middle East, or you contemplate, um, you know, any any like military dictatorship around the world. Like, what do you what do you do as an outside actor to try to get things to head in a better direction, or do you have a responsibility to do that? Do you just leave them alone and let them figure it out for themselves? I mean. Yeah, I, I I have no idea though. I think in 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 Central America, I mean, it, it wasn't even that we weren't leaving them alone. We were um, trying to maintain like you know mining interests and fruit interests. You know the the fruit companies. You know trying to basically look out for our own corporate interests in those countries. So um, sort of re- reinforcing authoritarian and right wing governments in those places because and the excuse was we're trying to stave off communism, but you know, also trying to maintain American uh, business interest in those areas. That's reductive, obviously, but well, I think think Gore Vidal wrote a novel about that years and years ago. Um, and it was set in, I want to say Guatemala. I want to say he lived down in Guatemala for like a a short spell, but got to lay eyes on exactly that. It was like United fruit company or something. Exactly. Exactly. United fruit owned like, you know, in, in Honduras, United fruit, you know, in some middle of the century owned basically all the arable land. You know, so the the actual citizens of the country couldn't grow any of the crops that were that they were exporting. Oh my god! Well, you know, uh, did you come to any conclusions, like as an outgrowth of writing your book? Did you did you have any like epiphanies about uh, you know American imperialism or its use of its power or corporate um, you know corporate influence? Uh, you know, I, 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 I wish I did. I mean, I, I think we can, <laughs> we can suggest that American imperialism is not, is not a very good idea and is morally bankrupt. <laughs> um, and it is, is, is not really, uh, and I guess be wary of any ideology that suggests that it's somehow righteous, but no, I mean, I didn't, I think, I think certainty in these, in these, in these situations is very, is very dangerous, especially when reinforced by, um, sort of, a, a sort of, uh, morality or, you know, self-righteousness, I guess. Um, you know, ha- having, having said that, I think, you know, when a country's using its military to reinforce its own, um, capitalist interests in other countries, it's probably not the best thing. Right. Right. Hence Saudi Arabia right now, right. Our, our relationship with them. Well, yeah, everything's so fucked up. And I, I find myself at the same, like in, in a similar vein, I can find myself reading about, say, a uh, uprising happening, um, you know, in a country where there's, uh, you know, dem- people who are like agitating for democracy and trying to organize and, um, you know, thinking about like, well, we, sh- we should help these people, you know, and it, sometimes America, when I guess its interests aren't necessarily, um, you know, at stake or we're not somehow fully invested because we don't have enough of an, um, economic interest. Usually it's like, are we being, ne- are we being negligent by not helping or is it not our place to help? Do you see what I'm saying? Like I can understand sort of the impulse to want to help those people in mm-hmm. these places where they're, they're oppressed, but it's hard to know exactly what it's supposed to look like. I think there's a danger probably in having, um, you know, one size fits all policy with, you know, intervention. I mean, certainly it would have been good had we intervened in Rwanda a right, lot sooner. Right, right, right. Exactly, you know? exactly. Or, or, you know, in, in, you know, to shut down the concentration camps in, uh, you know, World War II. I mean, there's a, there's a million examples where, you know, 
probably per- perhaps arguably in 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 even in in Syria recently I don't I don't know I just I think it's probably a situation where each situation is is uh distinct and you know you can't have a generic policy for use of force mm. So what about the publication? So you, you write this book over a period of years. Like how long, how long did it take you? So I wrote this book quickly, um, you know, more quickly than I've written anything else. I think I wrote it, I think I started writing it like December of 2006 and I probably finished it, you know, in 2008. So yeah, I mean, I wrote it, I wrote it very quickly for me anyway. Um, you know, and then, uh, it was, it was actually my, my MFA thesis and, it was the first novel I'd ever like written or finished. Um, and then I, you know, and then the economy collapsed and I sort of held on to it cause I didn't really know what to do with it right then. And I, I probably started sending it out finally in 2011, 2012, which is when it got accepted the first time. This is actually the second time it's come out. So wait, when the economy collapsed, like book publishers, like, I guess they retracted too. They weren't out accepting novels as often as they usually would. That was my sense. Anyway. I mean, I, 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 I didn't know, but yeah, it seemed like everything had slowed down and they were, you know, I didn't really know what to do with it at the time. So I just kind of held on to it for a few years before. And and then what happened? It's kind of a weird, like, so then I think, so I finally sent it to a press in 2011. Um, They accepted it in 2012. Um, it came out 2013 the first time with a, a press that was out of San Francisco that was sort of linked to McAdam Cage, which was at that point a San Francisco indie that was up, just about to die, basically, about to go bankrupt. And my press basically went bankrupt um, as my book was coming out. <laughs> you know, Fortuitous. Right. Yeah. So we, we printed, you know, lots of arcs. I went to Winter Institute in Kansas City, you know, met with lots of booksellers and everything. And then the press basically just died. So it got a lot of distribution, but no, no, no um, publicity or anything like that. And it disappeared pretty quickly. And then um, luckily, uh, Dezank picked it up for a second go. And that was, I think that was probably back in 2014. But it's, you know, these things take a long time. Right to come to fruition. So yeah, so you, this is a dec. This book is a decade old. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like someone else's book. I I, I, lo- I look back on it, and uh, you know, it's actually a good way for a book to come out because I don't have any kind of emotional um, hangups or sense of self wrapped up in something I wrote when I was twenty four. It's like you're promoting somebody else's book. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. And so, what does your writing routine look like? Like, you've obviously been working on other stuff since then. Yeah, I spent like the following like nine years writing another book, a second book that took me you know, forever to write. Um, I finished that a couple of years ago. Um, I've been doing something else since then. Um, I get, I do, you know, I get up early. I'm a morning writer. Um, so I try to write every, so I try to get up at like 4 AM, which, you know, sucks, but, um, I get up four between four and five every day and try to get a little time in before I have to do all the things that we have to do during the day. So when, like what, yeah. So what is it, what does the window look like? You're uh, like at your desk by four thirty, and you work until, you know, it it depends because I, I teach um, about an hour at a school, about an hour from my house. So the commute there is sometimes I'll get up, you know, I'll, I'll go into work really early, try to get, get into the office by 6 a.m. or whatever and spend a couple hours, you know, working there before I have to start prepping for class or something like that. Um, yeah, you know, I try like it's 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 like I, like everyone else with a job, right? Like it's there's all sorts of other things that come up and then you've got life and 
email and you know whatever else is going on but i try to get a few hours in in the mornings you know one way or the other and what's the what's the novel that took you nine years yeah you know it's the it's so it's totally different than horse latitudes it's a comic novel it's written about um you know someone who grew up in boston it's trying to i was trying to take on american identity or new england identity that's why it took so long because it was like really long in three different voices um sort of it was about like what it means to be an american and how we how we how we define ourselves and what narratives and what stories we tell to um you know, define ourselves there. And so it was looking at, you know, the immigrant experience, um, like what you see in a lot of like coming of age, picaresque Jewish American novels. And then it sort of, it shifts gears really radically halfway through to look at, um, the colonial war of, uh, King Philip's war, which was, uh, took place in the 1670s, which was uh, the most bloody war in American history, actually per capita between colonists and the native Americans living in new England and how we sort of shaped new England and America based on the way we talk about that war. Well, wait, I don't even like, this is a blind spot for me. So tell me about this, the the bloodiest war per capita in American history. Yeah, apparently, um, it was the, the, there was a war between, you know, the, the, the colonists, the settlers in, you know, Massachusetts primarily and the native American tribes living there. And it was incredibly violent and it was probably, um, sort of instigated by the colonists, um, just to start a war, um, depending on, uh, you know who you talk to um but it was the 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 offshoot of the war was that much of massachusetts burned i mean the the colonies were set back a hundred years in terms of infrastructure after this war and the native american tribes in massachusetts and maine were absolutely decimated um but it was just this incredibly violent war that yeah no one talks about we don't learn about it in school we don't um we don't discuss it and basically the way it was written about afterwards basically wrote it out of history wrote you know um the people who did write histories of it wrote it as sort of a righteous of course um christian sort of uh colonization of savagery but you know that that was obviously not true yeah you know it's funny they what's the old saying like the winners write history or whatever the victors get to write the history yeah exactly exactly um, so, 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 so you tied, you tying that into a more, like it's a, it's a, you're jumping around in time. There's like a more contemporary story of, of like a Boston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to imagine that this book has not yet found a home. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's a coming of age picaresque novel, um, about a, you know, a, a, a Boston caddy, um, who his, is gets hired by, um, a member at a at an old Boston country club where he caddies a lot to uh, find his daughter who's disappeared. Um, and when he finds the daughter, it turns out that, you know, she's from a very old Boston family that um, was actually, uh, that gained all of its wealth by helping create this war and start this war in the 1670s. Um, and so the second half of this um, novel takes place up in, you know, sort of the Native American reservations up in Maine that I went and traveled to, you know, when I was researching it where, you know, um, it's it, yeah, it's it's sort of like the the remnants of uh the, or the cultural echo of what happened back then, and it's still reverberating to at least to some extent. Well, I mean, it certainly is in terms of like you know, uh, economic decline and 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 poverty. I mean, in the years when this novel is taking place, you know, two thousand nine, I think the reservation I was looking at, I think the um, average life expectancy was forty nine years old, Jesus. which was this wasn't a country in the world 
that had a 49 year old year old um, life expectancy. What would you because of alcohol? I think because of like a lot of converging factors. Um, like, I mean, certainly there's, I mean, alcohol and drug abuse. And then like, up, you know, that part of Maine in general is, um, you know, has its problems with poverty and drugs and all that. But um, also I just think health and sickness and depression and yeah, I mean, it's, it's way up there. It's a bleak, it's a bleak part of Maine. And like, I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that like, Obviously, when you write about Native American reservations, you got to be careful not to fall into ruin porn or something like that. There are all these cliches of the genre. Um, on the other hand, you know, this was a reality in a place that was 250 miles from Boston, and you know, no one even talks about it. So, what do you do? You drive up there, and then you, uh, you just like say, "Hey, I'm here. I want to check it out." Do you have somebody show you around? Like, how do you how do you do the research? Yeah, I did. I, dro- I drove. I drove up. Um, I went to the reservation. I met some. People, I talked to people. I just talked about, um, you know, there, there's not much of the book that was set there. So it wasn't even like I think I needed the research for the writing of the book. I needed it to sort of feel comfortable to do the writing, if that makes sense. Um, just I wanted to, if I was going to write about people, I wanted to, or write about a situation, I wanted to actually talk to people who were there and, and, and see what, what it was like. Um, you know, and it's it's an area where, like, you know, there's not a, a very um, big local economy. There's a lot of blueberry picking, that which is seasonal. There's sort of logging. Um, there's a little bit of fishing, but there's not a lot else up there. It's pretty up in Maine, though. I like Maine. In the summer, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. This is way up there. This is like, this is very, this is very bleak. Though, yeah, gorgeous. I mean, desolate. So it sounds like you really like experiential research. Like it seems like it's been a factor in at least two of your books, the first two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I end up doing all this research and then not really using it. <laughs> but I feel like I need to see things and to just get a visual sense and to obviously meet people and talk to people just so I feel that I'm getting it right to some degree, that I'm not just um, falling into cliche or into um, some kind of cultural expectation that I'd have without even realizing it. Well, and also just maybe it gives you the, it allows you to give yourself permission to then create fictions in these places and with these people. And uh, I can understand that. Like I've, I've talked to writers on this show before who have written fiction set in distant lands or whatever that they never visited. They just like looked at pictures on Google and watched videos and just kind of uh, took it from there. And I don't know if I could do that. I I sort of feel like if I'm going to write a place or if I'm going to write people, uh, I need to have boots on the ground and actually like experience it a little bit. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I would feel bad about that. I'd also feel like there are things that you just, you wouldn't even notice or you wouldn't even know you're not noticing. I mean, I guess you can make it up too. And like my, my, the part of my novel that's set up in Maine is like narrated by an insane former pedophile classicist living on a houseboat um, who's, you know, survived a tornado when he was young and so bleeds from his ears and stuff like So it's very weird and silly and strange voice anyway. Um, so there's plenty of interjection of imagination there. But yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like you need to at least know what what sort of what it's like to be in that place a little bit. Well, you know, I say this though, and the the person I'm thinking of, um, had I not spoken about this issue, I would have never known that they hadn't gone there. It seemed completely believable in their fiction. So, <laughs> I guess it can be done. 
<laughs> oh yeah, I mean, as I as I said, I think most of the stuff that I actually see and take notes on, I don't ever use. Um, you just have to, you know, it's one of those things that you you have to give yourself permission, I think, to write, and it's one of those things I need to give myself permission, even if uh, it wasn't that necessary in the first place. Is there a favorite part of the writing process for you? Like, is there a, like, do you love editing or do you love drafting or is there something that comes most easily to you? None of it comes easily. I like, I like revising. I mean, I, I hate drafting. I hate it. It's, it's torture. Um, do you work, yeah, on, do you work on like a word count? You know, I used to, so I did with horse latitudes. I do, I tried doing like 500 words a day or whatever. Um, but then with the like the second novel, which took me nine years or whatever, no, I, I I tried, but I was just so slow. I mean, I I I, I, I like I feel like a good day of writing is five hundred words, but I ne- I mean I don't. That's very rare. Do you? And, but you you obviously are able to keep going. Like, do you ever get so frustrated you feel like thrown in the towel? Well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I get very frustrated. I don't know what I would do if I threw in the towel. <laughs> you know, um, right. At this point, <laughs> you know, I've sort of, I've sort of doubled down on this life. At this point, I better, I better keep doing it. Um, but taking nine years to write a book was horrible. You know, if, if it took me that long to write the next one, I, oh god, I, I mean, I, that was. I've that got was, you beat. I'm like in double digits. It's terrible, right? Yeah, I'm like, it's just haunting <laughs> me. It's been haunting me for a decade of my life. Yeah, you, know, you need, you need like momentum. I feel like momentum it helps you. Just stay in it and stay – because, you know, you change, right? Like you, you start writing and five years later, you're an entirely different person. What you want from the book has changed because you've changed and it's hard to stay like know which – what to let change and what to hang on to. Yeah, that's a good point, you know, because uh, you talk about horse latitudes and how it feels like it's somebody else's book. Uh, I can relate to that. And then if you spend too long on a book, then, you know, you wind up – it seems inevitable that you would wind up making major changes to it because you've changed – uh, so significantly it's hard to stay related to your book in the same way over that long of a period of time yeah and like i was i was struggling but you know for years the reason the second one took me so long i was, I was trying to do something that wasn't working i was trying to write the whole book from one point of view and it, years and years and years i spent doing that and then like it just wasn't working i couldn't hit all the registers i needed to hit and then like one day like seven years in i realized oh i could just write it in three different points of view and problem solved and became an immensely better book immediately and then it was easy to finish but it took me a long time to realize something very simple so and now but that book is out there on the market trying to find a home yeah yeah i mean it's the only thing i've ever written that i felt immediately comfortable with when i wrote it which is a good thing but it's also kind of maybe maybe it's a bad thing too because i i'm probably not as objective about it as i, as I should be but yeah it, it's 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 out there for those people who want coming of age picaresque humorous novels about america but also about colonial wars and america's history also about the bloodiest war per capita in the history of the country yeah yeah Yeah, one of those comedies wow how long is this thing is i feel like if nine years it's got to be like 800 pages but maybe i'm wrong the the first draft was the first draft was like 750 pages i've got it down for anyone who's listening to 500 pages now a very (laughs) manageable word count wow but yeah the, the first one was extraordinarily long and what are you working on what's the third book you got another one yeah, I'm about a hundred pages into a book. It's about it's about um, Holocaust survivors and uh, sort of um, coming to terms with intergenerational trauma that comes out of you know having parents or grandparents who uh, survived the Holocaust, but having this sort of downloaded trauma and dread that you don't even understand. That's, and it's supposed to be a comedy. 
So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- that's interesting though, because I've had conversations with Jewish friends of mine uh, about this very subject. You know, even though they are generationally removed from the horrors of the Holocaust, and even if they didn't necessarily have like grandparents who were in camps or who had to escape in some sort of really like a uh, harrowing way, just culturally, you know, the knowledge of that. Uh, is that there's a lot of heavy baggage to carry for anybody who's Jewish in in, in these times, right? Or in any, you know, ever since then. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, with as with, I think, so many people, I mean, like, you know, Trump has made all this come right back to the fore. I mean, what has seemed theoretical, it suddenly seems, you know, possible again. You understand how societies sort of degrade themselves so quickly. Right, right. And, you know, I was thinking, too, um, more broadly about the psychic toll that these past two years, you know, past three years, I guess, if you count the, the run up to the election, like what is the psychological toll uh, at a collective level, you know, of Trump and all that he has done to, I think, degrade the country, its institutions, the, the national discourse, you know, all of it. It's just, a, I think that it, this has been monumental in terms of its impact, but I don't think we necessarily, or at least I don't necessarily have a clear view of what it means uh, for me and then what it means like uh, on a, on a broader scale. No. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're constantly living in shock, right? It's like, you know, my friend calls it like slow, dull shocks. I mean, like we, we should be stunned, but like we're, we're, we're just constantly in in a state of horror. And that's, you know, that's if you're lucky, that's if you're, that's if you're privileged and it's primarily intellectual. I mean, you know, there's, there's plenty of people who are being viscerally, um, endangered by this, um, administration and, the people who support it, which is equally terrifying. I mean, my, my, my wife's family is from central Pennsylvania, and I know just traveling into central Pennsylvania to... Um, Wait, is your, during... is your wife the high Amish poet? Are you trying to, like, protect no, her? No, <laughs> <laughs> no my, my wife is not the high Amish poet. She is not uh, Amish. I'm, I don't I'm, think she's high right now. I'm going to float that conspiracy theory for everybody listening. <laughs> Morris is married to a high Amish poet. <laughs> f- f- fair enough. That Well, you know. Not not yet. Well, I think, um, I think what you got to do though is I think you got to you got to get back into your MMA training, and you have to draw upon your uh, your heritage. You know, your grandfather. We got to like because <laughs> like this is the this is a question. Is like at some point the Trump uh, era is going to end, hopefully sooner than later. And then what happens to all those like MAGA people after that? Like what happens to all these white supremacist movements and militias and all the crazy people who are on board? Yeah, I, I have, I have, I have no idea. I mean, like, one would hope they go back where they they came from, right? But um, I don't know. I think it depends on how this how this actually happens. I don't. I'd like to believe that he will not last out the rest of his term, but I I, I have no idea. Um, well, this, it's also, it's, what do you do with them though? Like, it's like uh, these people have like. It, it, I feel like there's been a rock that's sort of been overturned, and there's all these like potato bugs under it. You know what I'm saying? When you do that, there's worms, and you're just like, oh. I had no idea. And I think that, uh, I guess you, you knew that there was that element in this country. I don't know if I knew that it was as pervasive, uh, as it has become, or it was sort of like festering there. And then he enabled it and it just, uh, you know, it brought new people into the ranks or whatever, but how do you, how do we address that? And like, how do we medicate that? Uh, if that's the right word. 
I think we have to stop fetishizing understanding. I mean, like, there's all, and I understand this, but in the in the wake of the election, there's all these sort of think pieces, like, how did we get there? How did we get here? Now, immediately, we're talking about the next election, and we're talking about how are we going to court, you know, white male voters in Michigan or or whatever, you know, whatever whatever demographic you want, and it's kind of like. I, I don't I, I cannot understand how someone can look at Trump and support him. And I don't I don't think understanding necessarily is is the way to go there. I think we need to sort of move forward with a progressive progressive policies, a wider base, including more people. I don't know. Because I, I don't how how do you deal with it, right? How do you look at someone who supported Trump and supported this administration and say, you know, your 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 values are important to me? Right, right. Like, I want to try to bring you into the fold. I, I think you just you have know? to cut, you have to kind of talk right over them. Um, like anybody who's like deeply on board with uh, this agenda, um, you know, I, I don't think you, you shouldn't really pay much attention. Uh, you don't necessarily have to get into some sort of, uh, like, I'm speaking from the perspective of a candidate. Like, I don't know if you necessarily need to get down into the mud and have some sort of like verbal battle with them, but it's just like, you kind of ignore it and just talk right over. Or is that... Is that not the strategy? I, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't. I don't think. Like, I don't think you ever grant the premise, right? I don't think anything that they stand for or believe in is legitimate, and I don't think they think it's legitimate. Like, I don't think they actually believe. Like, these people weren't desiring a wall ten years ago, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. I was at the border. Like, it's not. It's it's a fantasy, and it's not even. It's not a real issue. It's just. It's it's an excuse to vent hatred or anger or disappointment or what you know i i don't know i i don't even know how to psychologize that kind of um pathology have you ever thought about writing a book about this i think everybody living through these times who's a writer is like well what would i ever say the farthest that i've gotten is just like keeping some sort of diary which i still i have not gotten around to doing but i wish i would have like especially going back to like day one i wish i would have just written a diary of these times and then tried to make something out of that and you know in the aftermath but um have you ever thought about it well you know it's it's funny you mentioned that i'm reading a diary right now by the romanian writer mihail sebastian who um survived the holocaust in romania and he i'm reading his diary from the fascist fascist years in romania and he writes every day about what he's feeling and it's amazingly prescient and he's got amazing perspective on it um I try to do something like that, and I just I'm I'm just sort of incoherent with rage and disgust. <laughs> you know, um, I think my book would just basically be me saying "fuck you." Um, like what I'm writing now is trying to. I'm trying to write about the Holocaust. I'm trying to write about it's set in the first year of Trump. It's I'm trying to write about you know anti-Semitism and Tea Party you know stuff. But it's hard to get the perspective on on you know what's going on right now. Well, and I, I'll say this, you know, the, they've been like, I feel like I've seen on Twitter or on the internet polls lately that show that a, like an alarming percentage of American citizens don't even know what the Holocaust was or <laughs> have these like inc incredible, like historical blind spots. And in the past, I've said to myself, like, my God, there's like so many like you flip through Netflix and it's like, there's so many Holocaust documentaries and so many, uh, movies made and you go like, you know, Oh my God, like, I, I don't know if I can watch another one, but then it's like, if, if people aren't remembering this or it's not being taught, it sort of underscores to me the critical importance of telling and retelling and reconstituting and redelivering these stories so that people don't forget because, 
um, like as we've seen, like societies can slip and the, the um, deterioration can happen faster than you would think. Yeah, it is. It is amazing how fast it happens. And I mean, as you point out there, I don't know how people aren't aware of the things that are out there. It almost feels willful. I mean, like, you know, you, you say, how do people believe all of Trump's lies when it's very clear that he's lying? Like he says, my I mean, my crowd was this size. And you're like, well, there's a photo. It wasn't. But like, so it, it almost feels like the desire not to hear or think or uh, address these things is almost willful. I, well, maybe that's well, but we also, you know, we talk about how fast things happen. And maybe that's maybe it like accelerated over the past two or three years, like this, you know, mm-hmm. the, the speed um, ratcheted up. But that's, I feel like that's kind of a fallacy because it feels to me like this moment that we're living in is something that we've been building to over decades. And there are all these different circumstances and conditions that presented themselves that contributed to it. Like it's very, it's actually very complex. It's not just like one or two or three factors that, um, you know, co-mingled and produced this result. It's, it's dozens and dozens and dozens of different things over long periods of time. And, um, you know, it, all the conditions sort of, uh, lined up and now here we are. Like, is that, does that feel accurate? Yeah, that certainly seems accurate in that like Trump and Trumpism are certainly an effect, not a, not a cause and a, a complex effect. It, it all, I don't know. It's sort of like with Brexit too, though. Right? I feel like these are self-inflicted wounds. I mean, like they're happening in the midst of a kind of strong economy. They're, you know, they're, they're happening in peacetime. They're happening, you know, like the conditions that are leading to this sort of extremism, both here and in Europe are not necessarily what they were, you know, in say the twenties or the thirties. Like it, it, it feels complex, but it also feels very, unnecessary well it feels like a russian op to me <laughs> yeah and that too i mean i think it's been in both cases it's the same op it's just different you know different uh it's different targets but i feel like brexit and what happened to us in 2016 are, are two parts of the same op like they're trying to fuck with western democracy through information warfare and hacking and all this stuff so yeah but when did they get so good at it uh, I feel like I feel like information warfare and psychological warfare, you know, Russia has been good at for a long time. But I feel like it's this, you know, the rise of social media and um, technology and, and hacking and all that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, that's more contemporary, but they fuse the two. Um, I feel like social media is just like that really is one of the linchpins of the whole thing just because of the access it gives you in terms of people's data and their behaviors and their psychological profiles but then also just the way we live now like people's eyeballs are on that stuff all day long it's very easy to influence people by manipulating what's on their their facebook wall and i think that you know what's scary about it is that it can it can feel very subtle you know i don't think people necessarily realize even people who are who have their wits about them, you know, you don't even realize that what you're clicking on or what you're liking or what you're responding to is actually, um, some sort of op, you know, somebody's posted that on your, on your screen who has, um, you know, malintent. So, uh, it's, it's, it feels like a huge problem and it feels like these, so especially Facebook, you know, they have, uh, they've sort of sold us all out and taken the money. And I think we're going to, you know, we keep finding out more and more and more, uh, dark 
stories about what they were up to. And I don't know. I feel like there's going to have to, at some point, be consequences. Well, I, maybe we're living in the consequences now. Well, I, I, but I mean, like, there's going to have to be consequences yeah. for the people and in, in executive yeah. roles at that company for what the you know what's happened because um, it seems like they knew what, what was going on to a large extent yeah. and let it happen. Yeah. So anyway, I, I could get up on a soapbox about Facebook. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Um, so, okay. So you, you're a hundred pages into your third book. Your first book has been reissued by, by Dezank. Your second book, which sounds like a, like a magnum opus is out there, um, waiting to be scooped up. Uh, is there anything else on your plate creatively or is this it? Like, are you working on a script or something? Do you have a television pilot? You know, doesn't everyone? I, I, you know, I, I keep thinking if you know, I've, I've, I've got, a, I've got a television pilot, and I've got a, an outline for a series. I think you know, maybe I'll write it. But no, I got, I got to finish the, the, the second, the or the third novel faster this time. I'm gonna, you know, put my head down and not take nine years because it's not supposed to be that hard. Yeah, cheers to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, you too. Right. It's great. Uh, it's great to talk to you. I'm glad we got to, um, you know, spotlight your book in the, in the book club, uh, this month and I appreciate your time and I wish you well on, uh, on your work. Yeah. Thanks very much, Brad. It's been an honor to talk to you. Okay. That is Morris Collins. His debut novel, Horse Latitudes is available from Dezank Books. You can find him online at morriscollins.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle on Twitter is at Morris A. Collins. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music, and thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to download the Other People app, this show has its own official app. It's free. Go get that wherever you get your apps. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. All right. Twiggy, say Happy New Year. She's growling at the neighbor's dogs. Okay, guys. Happy New Year. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 